there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Hello there. And by the magic of editing, you'll be hearing from Craig Eastman as we go along. What has happened to my laptop? We have a variety of awards contending films to go through today, so I guess without much further ado, we shall crack straight on. So, as mentioned by the magic of editing, Craig Eastman is here to tell us about La La Land. Craig, over to you. On to La La Land. Is there any point in summarising a movie that has so far won all the awards and will no doubt win all of those remaining? Probably not. But on the assumption that a couple of our listeners might have been on some sort of covert Mars mission these last three months, allow me to go through the motions. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are Sebastian and Mia, two souls searching for a means to achieving their dreams in contemporary Los Angeles. He is a pianist of some ability who eschews gainful employment in chase of his fanciful plans to open a world-class jazz club, and she is an aspiring actor whose will to succeed is hanging by a thread following the emotional beatdown of a slew of failed auditions. After orbiting and aggravating each other through the gravitational pull of the LA party scene, the unlikely pair eventually come together and love blossoms in a relationship that seems destined to fulfil both their dreams. However, fate has a couple of cards up its sleeve that deal critical blows to the fairy tale romance. Will the relationship survive? Will either party realise their dream? Will silly people stop questioning whether this qualifies as a musical? In answer to that last question, and with as short shrift as it deserves, yes it is. Assuming you believe that genres ought to be allowed to evolve without imposing arbitrary goalposts for your own personal gratification, then La La Land is quantifiably, indisputably, a musical. A lot of the arguments I've heard to the contrary seem to be variations on the phrase the songs aren't memorable, but that would be a personal issue of musical taste rather than some failing on the part of director Damien Chazelle and his crew. Such silliness aside, let us speak of Chazelle, who wowed just two years ago with big screen debut Whiplash, and decided to follow that reverence with an audacious take on a genre which, bar one or two exceptions, has been missing presumed dead for the best part of half a century. It's a bold move, and for the most part it pays off. While it may not be perfect in a number of regards, there is certainly nothing else like La La Land out there in multiplexes, and at least part of its financial success can no doubt be attributed to the breath of fresh air it has lent to schedules. There are difficulties with the movie, and for the first 10-15 to minutes there is a very real risk that viewers are not going to connect with the main characters. For each moment of charm offered by either, it feels as though there are two to aggravate or annoy. I strongly suspect that this opening reel is the fulcrum upon which a lot of opinion is going to pivot, and if an audience doesn't buy into the style and pitch of proceedings by that point, they may well end up lost. Perhaps it says something in itself that I can't actually pinpoint the moment at which I swung toward the positive. Full disclosure of this reviewer's gosling man-crush is a matter of public record, but once it clicked, I found myself generally enthralled and consistently emotionally involved in a way that I haven't experienced since Amelie. There's a good case to be made that at least 20 minutes could be excised from the two hours plus change running time, mainly from a lagging half hour around the middle where it feels Chazelle may have lost focus and the movie feels like it is having a mild crisis of identity. Fortunately, there is enough emotionally involving material either side of that gap to permit forgiveness from those who've accepted the steep buy-in of the opening act. Of Gosling and Stone, there is little to say beyond the praise already heaped by an ebullient press, except that perhaps the awards focus on the latter feel slightly unfair on Gosling, who is at least the equal of Stone and, if anything, displays greater convincing emotional range on his journey from dreamer to emotional cynic. Such reservations aside, Chazelle builds on the foundations of an emotional juggling act first established in Whiplash to expose his audience to the proverbial roller coaster across a pretty broad gamut. For scene after scene, La La Land brazenly walks a tightrope between infuriating naivety and sophisticated connection, which balancing acts as more about the human condition than any number of overwrought dramas within recent memory combined. Like Whiplash, La La Land works toward a bold, misdirectional climax that somehow balances heart-rending despair with an almost euphoric affirmation of love and life. The most remarkable hallmark of Chazelle's directorial style is his willingness to bring his movies to a conclusion on a facial expression with the kind of confidence normally associated with multi-million dollar effect sequences. It's that understanding of how human emotion works, that leverage of pathos, that makes Chazelle's case as one of the most satisfying directors working in Hollywood today, and with just 31 years on the clock, the sky is very much his limit. La La Land will not be everyone's cup of tea, and to imagine so would be ridiculous, but in a world swamped with superhero movies, it is refreshing to find something both so well-crafted and yet willing to wear its heart on its big, goofy sleeve. So, that's what he thinks, but Drew Tavendale, what do you think about La La Land? Well, I think I feel quite differently to Craig, Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say. I think it's probably fair to say that while... Neither of the three of us are particularly big fans of musicals. That of the three, I am probably 
if not the biggest fan, the most tolerant. Mm-hmm. And having heard so much about La La Land and being hyped up so much, and as I say, being the most tolerant towards musicals, I was quite looking forward to it. And I have to say that I was spectacularly disappointed. <laughs> now, I know Scott in particular, you are one of those modern film viewers that really get taken out of a thing by people suddenly singing or dancing in the middle of a street for no good reason. Yeah, the happy glappy stuff tends not to fly for me. Whereas that doesn't bother me. That's what they do in musicals. I don't really care why they're singing. That's just what they do. This is this is not my issue. So when you have this big opening scene on the freeway at the start in Los Angeles when all the people are singing in their cars, great. I think that's a fantastic way to open a musical. Unfortunately, and this is my biggest issue for the whole film really, it's just not very good music. And I felt that basically for the entire film. <laughs> and for a musical, not liking the music is a bit of an issue. <laughs> now, I know that you had one of the main themes stuck in your head for some weeks after seeing this film. Yeah. I couldn't have told you what the main theme was while I was watching it. <laughs> the music was making no impact on me at all. Uh, that's not even hyperbole. Two hours after I saw this film, I could not remember a single tune. I just didn't enjoy any of the music. I didn't find any of it catchy or interesting. And that alone is enough. I thought the music was bad. And yeah. <laughs> that's pretty substantial in the film based on the music. For the rest of it, though, it's not a particularly bold move to have a film where neither of your two main singing stars are particularly good singers because it's been done before. Look at Sweetie Todd. And I enjoyed that immensely. And the only two people in that film who could actually sing really really unlikable and everybody else was the were the people who really couldn't sing particularly well at all here emma stone and ryan gosling they're okay i mean they're not bad singers but they're not really of the caliber that you would expect in a big hollywood musical and certainly not up to the standards that we've seen in recently in the likes of les miserables and certainly they're engaging enough they're both great actors they have reasonable chemistry between them and they're engaging to watch the problem i have there though is that I didn't really buy their relationship because they're not really in love with each other. One's in love with acting and one's in love with music hmm. because the whole film is basically about Hollywood being in love with itself because Hollywood loves itself and it loves yeah. nothing more than itself and its own mythos and its own history. And top of this have no likable music, a fairly uninteresting romance. And what particularly bothered me about that was there's a moment in the film where after having got into a relationship, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling suddenly break up in a fairly standard romantic comedy type arc. You know, boy finds girl, boy and girl get together, they break up, etc. That's all quite straightforward and that's fine. But they have this moment where they start arguing about their focus on their jobs and things. And for me, that really, really rubbed me the wrong way because it just simply wasn't earned. It was like a drama bomb being dropped in. It's like, Oh, well, in these films, usually there's a bit where the people fall out. What will we do? Oh, well, we could just have them be angry that they're spending too much time away, despite the fact there was pretty much no mention of it up to that point at all, that it was a point of tension. And it just felt very forced and and very, very unearned that that would be why they fell out. After that point, though, the film grew on me a bit and certainly warmed up to it. Still, the music was doing nothing for me, and it's by no means a bad film. I wouldn't say I regret watching it, although I certainly have no plans to ever watch it again. It's well made. The main two people, unsurprisingly, the beautiful people who can act well, you know, are entertaining to watch. And um, as I say, warmed up to in the second half. And that, that last sequence, when one of the characters is imagining how things might have otherwise turned out, that actually, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. But for everything else, it was very, very bland. I made a joke on Twitter, or actually it was the notes for when we were talking on Slack about this, it's the joke about calling this blah blah bland, but that's how I feel about this film. It's not bad enough for me to get angry about, but it just didn't excite me in any way at all. I'm just so disappointed by it because I was really geared up to enjoy it, and I simply do not understand any of the awards buzz around this film at all. And it can't simply be just that Hollywood loves itself so much because it's not just Hollywood that seems to be caught up by this film. But for me, it did nothing. Yeah, I guess I probably sit halfway between the pair of you. 
I'm not so fond of the happy clappy stuff in musicals, so when it opened with that number, which contained about 120% of the world's twee supply, (laughs) I I just sort of started settling in to find a nice comfortable place to sleep for a couple of hours, but uh, it did kind of win me over as it went through it, mainly due to Stone and Gosling, who, bless them, not great singers and dancers, they're good enough, I suppose, to carry it, but, you know, they're not in the same league as the, the classics of old, but they have enough acting chops to have a compelling enough relationship. And it, it kind of started winning me over and I was more or less going along with it. I have a slightly different problem with the ending. Uh, much like you, I'm not, I wasn't all that impressed with the music of it in terms of the way it sounded. However, I can't deny that there's been a hell of a lot of work put into it. It's all very, uh, I would say it's immaculately produced. The production yeah, value is really well done. Polished final article, there's no doubt about that. I just, I yeah. just didn't think like what they polished. It's the sort of thing where I can very much realise that it's not my cup of tea, but if this is the sort of thing you like, it's a really good example of the type. So uh, in that regard, I can see why it is so popular and why it's found the audience, if nothing else. I did not like the ending at all. I thought that last act, let's call it, uh, the last little section after there, and perhaps some of my old spoiler warning here, uh, as you, you kind of mentioned earlier when they're talking about how things could have gone differently, I thought that was just dropped in from nowhere. And if perhaps if it had the, the guts to kind of stick with the unhappy ending, I would have been fine, but they immediately re- had to rewind that and show you the happy ending as well. And I'll let Wayne's World away with that kind of garbage, but not this <laughs> film. So I, um, when I left the cinema, which was ooh, about a month ago, I saw this just before we recorded our last intermission podcast, I would have been incredibly angry about the whole thing, um, but that's largely faded by this point, and I just kind of don't really remember all that much about it at all. Um, a, a few bars of City of Stars, but that's about it. Now, while... I suppose my subjective opinions for this kind of film are of limited validity because it's really just not the kind of film that is for me at all. I can at least recognise the vibrant visuals, the two likeable lead performances, and I can really understand why it's a a solid audience-pleasing film. But like yourself, I I, I don't really understand why it's been spoke of for one million golden statuettes. Uh, I would probably recommend that for general audiences, you should certainly watch it um, if you're have any rough inclination to this kind of thing, I think you'll probably get some joy out of it. But um, I'm not so taken for it to just kind of sweep the award season. There would have been much less worthy winners in history, I suppose. I wouldn't be too <laughs> upset about it. But uh, yeah, I don't think it quite deserves it, particularly when we talk about some of the other films we'll talk about this podcast, yeah. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily warn anyone I've seen it. I wouldn't recommend either. And if someone were to ask me, should I watch this film? My response would almost certainly be a, a shrug and a, mm. you know, it's, I don't want anything to really latch on to about this. And as I say, really, I'm disappointed by it. I was geared up to enjoy it and it just it left me cold. I'm rather disappointed by that. So another one that's been spoken of with a little bit of Oscar buzz about it would be Hidden Figures. Drew, would you like to tell us a little bit about that film? I would indeed, Scott. Very kind of you, sir. You're welcome. After the success of the Soviet Union in launching both the first artificial satellite, Sputnik, and the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin, the United States found themselves on the back foot in the space race, and there was a lot of pressure on NASA to get the first American into space and then head for the moon. This was a mighty set of engineering problems, and in those early days, NASA relied much less on machinery and more on brain power to do their calculations. These calculations were performed and checked by computers, sure, but then computer meant person, and usually black woman person. It is the story of one of these computers, Catherine Johnson, Taraji P. Henson, that forms the central story of Hidden Figures, the second feature from St. Vincent director Theodore Melfi, as she attempts to assert herself at NASA and show the contribution she can make to getting an American astronaut into space and, crucially, safely back down again. Concurrent with this is Dorothy Vaughn's Octavia Spencer's struggle to get the appropriate title and pay for the supervisor's job that she's already basically doing without recognition, and Mary Jackson's, Janelle Monet's legal battle to be allowed to study engineering classes, Virginia's Stone Age laws denying her access because the classes take place in a segregated school. After an opening scene, when the three women are questioned at the side of the road by a police officer, A very tense scene, but one whose outcome puts you no doubt about the tone the film will take going forward. The trio arrive at NASA, but are quickly split up. As Catherine moves to Al Harrison, Kevin Costner's flight dynamics team, Mary works on spacecraft engineering, and Dorothy makes her battle for fair pay while anticipating the changes that will come when the hulking IBM mainframe arrives. 
There are smattering scenes in the women's home lives, providing some welcome flesh in their characters, but the bulk of the action is, as it ought to be, on their professional struggles and successes. While they get regrettably few scenes together, the central trio of women are always engaging and all three give spirited and winning performances of entertaining and likeable characters. Sadly, things are very different for the more peripheral characters. Jim Parsons, whose engineer Paul Stafford could be summed up entirely as grumpy racist misogynist Pratt for reasons, <laughs> and Kirsten Dunst's condescending manager Vivian Mitchell fare particularly badly. They are thinly sketched stereotypes. Now, there's an irony there in that such one-note caricatures are the only roles that many black actors were able to get for many, many years, particularly at the time this film was set. And while it may be tempting to think, payback, two wrongs don't make a right. And really, it's just bad and inadequate writing. And to the detriment of the film, Costner gets the best deal of these lesser characters, and he at least lends his distracted and stressed character some real warmth and gravitas. Now to the meat of it though, Hidden Figures is very, very populist. Certainly, there's an argument to be made that an uplifting, populist approach is the right one to take to get this little-known story out to a wider audience, and to help illuminate people on the contribution of these black women to the outcome of one of their nation's proudest successes particularly when the face of that success has been so resolutely white and male for 50 years. And to that end, it's quite successful. But hidden figures feel so very safe, both in content and delivery. Most of the edges have been sanded off. And while this film does portray some of the difficulties the characters faced, both because of their gender and the colour of their skin, it lacks the sense of threat and danger that went hand in hand with that time and place, and fails to ask the more difficult questions. Unfortunately too, there was one scene, a centrepiece of the trailers, in which Kevin Costner's Al Harrison knocks down a coloured bathroom sign, declaring that, at NASA we all pee the same colour, that, while satisfying a context, is contrived, i.e. totally didn't happen, and extremely open to being read as white man ends racism. <laughs> in the film, though, it does at least serve as an audience-pleasing, cheerleading high point, and brings to an end the totally awkward montages of Catherine's also fabricated cross-campus trips to the bathroom, and their accompaniment by Pharrell Williams' running. <laughs> Such an odd scene to fabricate. Why was that sequence of all fabricated? Uh, a shout out to uh, Blake Wrights on Twitter, uh, who mentioned the same thing, but Black critics have rightly torn this film a, a new one for this toilet scene and seeing it as appeasement to white audiences and uh, in real life she refused to use a different toilet which would have made a far stronger scene for that character to you know, demand equality at that point rather than have us suffer through what 10 minutes of this weird <laughs> tonal shuffling to a yeah. toilet and back it's just a strange addition to any film it's <laughs> weird and the most cynical part of me would suggest that that's perhaps because Pharrell Williams had written this song and wanted it in there damn it <laughs> yeah. feasible I guess although I suspect not I certainly hope not but yes her refusing to use another toilet would be much better and it is so totally awkward and the actress is given some sort of really awkward moments there where she basically has to act like a little girl who can't hold on yeah. before she goes to the toilet it's kind of undignified and I know partly that's the point but it feels undignified in a different way yeah. for the actor rather than the character all of that said though Hidden Figures is a very enjoyable colourful and interesting look into a little known piece of 20th century US history and it's definitely worth watching particularly for the performances of Monet, Spencer and Henson and it is likely to leave you emotionally if not intellectually satisfied. As a film I enjoyed Hidden Figures right I, I, I sat there and watched it and I liked it and it has a lot of people that I really like all, all the main characters were quite good as, as you mentioned the only weak spot in it is Sheldon from the, the Big Bang Theory who is sorry <laughs> sorry boy you're typecast now you're never going to be anything other than him um, well, I've never seen the Big Bang Theory so he's not typecast to me but <laughs> yeah. so for, for you he's the guy off the Muppets uh, as a piece of social commentary it is paper thin so if that is the kind of thing you're looking for then you, you should be looking elsewhere there, there is nothing even remotely confrontational about this this yeah, that's is a, a so much it's so safe and like just 
say something. It's so anodyne. I mean, it's enjoyable, but it's so anodyne in that respect. Yes, I was listening to the most recent Magic Lantern podcast where they're talking about Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which, of course, is, makes a better fist of having like social commentary and the confrontation and humour at the same time, whereas this one is really just humour and a little bit of nice narrative that, that everyone can agree on. This is really the bland anodyne film of the of race relations it feels toothless if you want mm. something in that regard but you know you, you you maybe don't necessarily need that from every film and that doesn't necessarily have to be this film this film is doing a good enough job of just as you say showing the contribution of, of the african-american community to great programs that you would never have associated them with at any point before and in that regard i can have some celebration of it and i can have celebration of it just being an enjoyable film and that's probably enough for me to at least recommend it to everyone it's a little puzzling to see it being held in quite so high regard as anything other than that, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's particularly when there's uh, some far more potent political commentary for uh, African-Americans that we'll talk about a bit later on. This is a good film, and I liked it, and I recommend it to all. And I'm sorry if I sound a little bit negative about it, just because it's not being a firebrand radical and not ignoring the uh, the civil struggles of the time, apart from making you know some slight nods to it. I think one of the... Uh, wife's husbands i think is a at least mentioning this kind of um, the civil rights struggle in a bit wider more violent terms but it's like a throwaway comment coming from two um, lines or something isn't it when janelle monet is going to try and get into the engineering classes i think i think it's her husband yeah so yes there's there's a small bit of that and what is successful in is that while some of it's contrived and that seems to go hand in hand with any story based on reality yeah this maybe has more than a lot so it's maybe we should be grateful for that what you're left in at the end is that most people didn't know because as i said the face of the space race is white and male and has been for a long long time so it leaves you no doubt that these women were deeply involved in it and that they were very very good at their jobs so mm-hmm. it's successful in that point of view but when you think of the time and the place and i just i wanted to be spikier yeah because and it's something i'll mention in another film we'll come to later too so much of the things that in there are still sadly relevant today oh yeah, yeah. And that's why there's still so much tension in that scene of the police officer with the women by the side of the road at the start because you know that how badly that could still go today yeah and then so that's why it's still an undeniably tense scene because you don't know where it's going if you really don't know the tone of the film at that point and then it starts off with them not quite trick them but it's not far off because he's a kind of dumb heck policeman so like, oh, I desperately need to get to NASA and they find that the one thing he hates more than black people is Russians and communists yeah. <laughs> so he gives them a police escort to NASA and then they start joking about oh we're three black women chasing a police officer down the highway in Virginia <laughs> it's like it's funny and it's entertaining, but like I said, you've got no doubt of how the film's going to approach things after that point. And yeah, yeah. I, just, I wanted something with a bit more substance. That's yeah, all. a bit more teeth to it. But. So that brings us to Train Spotting 2, or T2, as it's somewhat bafflingly stylized. In case you might be thinking of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So, it should be Train Spotting 2, Electric Tramaloo. Oh, that was painful. Yes. I'm tired. That's my excuse. (laughs) So being Scotsman of a certain age, as you'd expect, we've, or at least I've, certainly got a certain affinity with 1996 train spotting. Yes, we we is appropriate. Yes, I I couldn't, I was thinking, I couldn't actually remember us speaking in any great detail about train spotting, but it just seems like the kind of film you'd like, because, I mean, you're not mental (laughs) if one likes train spotting. It hits a, a sweet spot of being both part of the cool Britannia scene that was around at the time, and a a riposte to it as the heroes of the piece and their choice of recreational activities are certainly not the best of British. Narratively, there's not a huge amount to work through in the original, but Danny Boyle did provide some of the most striking visuals of the age and, crucially, some of the most vibrant characters committed to celluloid. So, 20 years on, I suppose there's some trepidation about returning to the scene of the crime. This adapts some leftover parts of Irvin Welsh's train spotting book, along with some loose strands from his ultimately forgettable follow-up porno, but it is very much its own beast. Mark Renton, played by Ewan McGregor, returns to Edinburgh after absconding to Amsterdam with the gang's drug deal profits after the end of the first film, as his largely successful attempt at going straight married with a job in the glamorous world of accountancy, hits the skids when his wife asks for a divorce and he sees the downsizing axe hanging over his position. The bulk of the film, then, will be how his former friends responded to his return. Artful dodger Simon Sickboy Williamson, played by Johnny Lee Miller, 
is now acting as a pimp-cum-blackmailer with Veronica, Angela Nedlakova, while running in Inherited Slum of a Pup in Leith, and he seems to welcome him back after an initial bit of aggression, but he may well be playing a longer game. The good-natured but still addicted spud, Ewan Bremner, may have received his share of the cash, but is still upset that he would leave his friends so casually, and besides, what do you expect a junkie to do with four grand except to shoot it into their veins? The other keenly affected party is all-round violent psycho nutbag Begbie, played by Robert Carlyle, of course, unsurprisingly serving a stretch at Her Majesty's pleasure for some laundry list of crime, but who goes on the lamb after engineering a trip to the hospital. He returns home to find a son who has no inclination at all to follow in his father's thieving violent footsteps, but something like that is not about to stop him attempting to drag him down that path regardless. And so it goes. With another scam, Sick Boy attempts to run based on conning the government into giving him a regeneration loan for his pub to turn into a brothel, acting as a fulcrum for all these elements to smash together in, if we're honest, predictable enough fashion. (laughs) But true to its pedigree, the narrative is the minimally acceptable framing device to start hanging the characters from, which is a substantially better use of the film's time. It's arguably more of an extended denouement to the first film than its own story, but it's still strong enough to support the weight of these characters, and that is what we are here to see. It is an absolute joy to revisit these characters, uh, their perspectives and their humour, and their struggles after all this time. While we'll have to wait for time to tell if it's as iconic a character piece as the original, my money's on no, but it's still an insanely enjoyable film full of the vibrancy, the humour, and the downright criverness that made the 1996 outing so great. Perhaps most rewardingly in the characterisation department, while all of the Promo material is about the charm of Renton, or the guile of Sick Boy, or the fury of Begbie. The real hero of this film turns out to be Spud, who... Oh, yes, Spud. Yeah, he grows from being a punchline to a fully fleshed-out character over the course of the piece. He's even part of briefly making Begbie relatable, but don't worry, that doesn't last for very long. <laughs> and um, Spud's so sympathetic in this film as well. Yeah, he's, he's the absolute linchpin, and if you'd underwritten him even slightly, then the rest of the film would actually fall apart. He really does carry it in a way that <laughs> you would probably not have expected going into it. Certainly I didn't. But overall, I won't labour the point. This is a hugely enjoyable film, and if I'm not talking about it in our Films of the Year podcast in December, we will have had one hell of a year. <laughs> uh, I have perhaps a slight concern that some of the funniest scenes may not play so well outside of, well, central Scotland, uh, <laughs> but for what it's worth, the musical sequence in Trainspotting 2 is substantially funnier than anything in La La Land. <laughs> Go and see it if you haven't done already. I was very, very fond of Trainspotting in the mid-90s, and... I hadn't actually watched the original again for, well, I can tell you now, probably 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I was I, thinking the same when I was going into it. It's like, I've not seen Trainspot in a long time. And then I realised I don't actually need to because it's one of those <laughs> films that was almost so immediately vibrant and memorable that it's kind of imprinted on me and I don't really need to watch it again. It's just up there. Yes, and because <laughs> I'd read the book and then watched the film several times back then, then also, yes, I didn't need to. But I guess I hadn't watched it in a long time and... And I watched it a few weeks ago because of this film coming out. And I was like, really glad to find out that I enjoyed every bit as much now as I had when I first saw it. That made me slightly trepidatious about the sequel, though, understandably. But just from basically the first moment where Ewan McGregor flies off the treadmill and smacks his knackers (laughs) against the wall, this film is on my good side. It was just, it's... It's so funny. Yeah, it's got the tone down right, hasn't it? And Serbic, yes, and, and as you say, Spud is a harvest. It's managed some really touching moments as well. The only thing while I was watching it towards the start that I was a bit concerned about was that there was a this sense of danger to Robert Carlyle in the first film's Begbie. And even though he's attacking someone near the beginning of the film, I still thought, oh, I don't know, is he too old now? Is, is, mm. is Begbie still Begbie? And that jumper isn't helping, <laughs> or the sweatshirt isn't helping him any. And I was a wee bit concerned that either the character wasn't written as well as time, or maybe Robert Carlyle couldn't get back into it. Right. And Begbie is so important to this story because he's the enemy. Yeah. Right? And he's a potentially enemy to every human being there is because he's Begbie. <laughs> that concerned me at the beginning, but fortunately, just as the film goes on, it's like, oh no, no, Begbie's still dangerous. He's still... Yeah believable as this villain and it needs to be for the film to work so that's good everybody just seems to step right back into where they were 20 years ago yeah and also the cards and and you could possibly level a criticism at it that some of it seems so much kind of visual style like a a 1990s music video or something and 
again, that's part of the point because as well as being a sequel, as these people have never left that time. Yeah. Despite the fact they seem to have forgotten that actually the film was set in the eighties, not the nineties, and that should <laughs> really be thirty years that they're talking instead of twenty. But yeah. um, I guess we just let that slide. But yes, it's because they're not really able to let go of that time, and it works so well as well as just being visually distinctive and funny and entertaining. Yeah, basically don't have a bad thing to say about this. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this film. And Ewan Bremner, he's still, he's such a kind of gormless looking guy. <laughs> and Spud's still sort of the comic relief in this, but not in the way he was in the first film. And yeah, by the end, he's just, he's, as you say, he's got the linchpin and he's so sympathetic and funny and touching. And it's like, oh, no, please don't let anything bad happen to Spud. <laughs> yeah. Which you kind of felt in the first film as well. And when you, when Renton left him the money and um, when he said about, you know, the one person I felt bad that was Spud because Spud harmed no one. Mm. That carries on in this film. It's nice. You don't want anything bad to happen to Spud because there's no malice in him at all. Yeah. So the fact that they've bulked up Ewan Bremner's role in this and made it so important as well is fantastic. And I mean, maybe it's like Renton has had some character development, I guess, in the intervening 20 years. Sick Boy hasn't. Sick Boy's the same person he was. Begby's the same person he was. But it's... Spud that has got character development mm-hmm. and you, I don't think you would have guessed that and it's fantastic and I I just love this film I, it was fantastic and I agree with you that if this isn't one of the films of the year we're going to have had one heck of a year <laughs> film wise yeah <laughs> and it's the one film we can't say the thing we normally say about any Robert Carlyle performance which is to say it would have been better if he'd played this role as Begbie <laughs> because he did play it as Begbie so Uh, yeah hugely hugely enjoyable film as i say we'll need to wait and see if it holds up to the test of time Uh, i I guess this will be viewed more as the the adjunct piece it's uh, it's really more train spotting at one and a half but that's plenty good enough for me Mm -hmm. uh, i'll take that yeah yeah really enjoyed it and very happy to have seen it phenomenally popular up in scotland of course cinema screenings were sold out uh, for a good couple of weekends when i was trying to watch this and puzzlingly, one of the few times I've seen people actually smuggling booze into cinema. <laughs> so I guess it knows, this audience knows what to expect. <laughs> I was the sort of the more sophisticated audience, Scott. I was just smuggling Tang Fastics by Haribo in. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, just, as, uh, just as powerfully addictive as the H. Yeah, uh, if you have any regard at all for the first film, then you need to see this. I think if you haven't seen the first film, though, then you really need to see that first. I don't think you can see this cold. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair comment. It relies too much on, if not the events, the characters of the first film, that I don't think you could go in cold. I yeah. would really suffer for that. Yeah, I, I was worried perhaps at the start that this might be heading too closely into just being a, a little bit of a nostalgia fest. And I think it does manage to stave that off over the course of the piece. There's a few navel-gazing moments, but they're not too obnoxious. And I think they're more just kind of referential nods back to the source material. But yes, if you've not seen the source material, <laughs> if you've not seen the first film, then you will probably be a bit bamboozled by what's going on in this one. That is fair comment indeed. Pretty much the only caveat I have about the film, because it's just so good in every other way. Yeah. And look, if nothing else, it just means it's another recommendation, because if you've not seen Train Spotting, the original film, it's one of the best films. And you should watch it. I don't think that's just a a sense of national pride there. It's just a really good film. Really vibrant and imaginative. And really, again, all the reasons we listed why we like this film, I think we could apply equally and perhaps more so to the first film as well. So, yes, two great films in the series. So I assume they'll do a third one and ruin it all back in another 20 years when they're in the retirement home. So we shall hand over again to virtual Craig Eastman, who's going to tell us all about Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge then, wherein Mel Gibson returns to the Hollywood primetime for his first directorial duties in a decade. It is the story of one Desmond Doss, played by Andrew Garfield, a pacifist who nonetheless enlisted for medic duty with the US Marines during World War II, and who faced all manner of distrust and abuse, both physical and mental, from among the ranks due to his remarkable refusal to lay hands on any form of weapon. Pilloried as a liability to his unit, Doss nonetheless stuck to his convictions through military trial and ultimately won his right to serve sans shooter, his fellow marines indignantly assuming their problem would be solved within moments of their first assault on Okinawa and the titular headland. Somehow defying both astronomical odds and, it would seem, some fundamental laws of physics, Doss performed perhaps the closest thing mankind has witnessed to a genuine miracle during that assault. Amidst the hail of small arms and machine gun fire from the Japanese and the relentless blanket shelling of his own navy, old Des rescued something in the order of 70 wounded colleagues, mostly single-handedly, and many after his unit had fallen back from the ridge presuming that all was lost. 
Regardless of your opinion on Doss's attribution of his survival to his Seventh-day Adventist religious convictions, it is a remarkable tale, and one which feels as though it ought to have been celebrated somewhat more substantially. This is the first time Doss's exploits have been explored in the cinematic medium, and given how overtly crowd-pleasing an opportunity it presents, it's baffling that we haven't been treated to an adaptation until now. For that very same reason, it is an eminently sensible choice for Gibson with which to resurrect his Hollywood profile. Previous directorial outings for Gibson have established that he's very much a meat and potatoes man, but that he does make a very tasty corned beef hash out of those simple ingredients. And given his tentative return to the limelight, it is no surprise to find Gibson taking few risks with the material. Hacksaw Ridge is a movie of two halves, neither of which offers much new in and of itself. If I may be so bold as to begin with the latter half, what we are treated to for the last hour of the movie is a visceral portrayal of the events on Okinawa in which Doss plied his trade so effectively. So many men on both sides went into and were spat out of the meat grinder, and Gibson takes gruesome pride in attempting to one-up Saving Private Ryan in his portrayal of the harsh realities of war. As effective as it is, this portrayal is perhaps necessarily bereft of much sophistication, and with almost 20 years between this and Spielberg's landmark, Hacksaw Ridge perhaps falls foul of a level of human destruction fatigue. I feel like once you've seen one soldier's face shot off by machine gun fire, you've seen them all. This is unfortunate, as had Hacksaw Ridge come along first it would undoubtedly have had much more impact. The first half deals mainly in sentimental nonsense, though no more so in some respects than Private Ryan, and almost grudgingly touches on Desmond's childhood before skipping swiftly on to his hellish time at boot camp. This is a missed opportunity in the extreme, as I found myself far more interested in Doss's relationship with his abusive father, Hugo Weaving, than in any number of scenes of his fellow recruits kicking the crap out of him for his moral convictions. Gibson expends an awful lot of time and energy here reinforcing the message that Doss was a pacifist, rather than investigating the far more interesting topic of why he was a pacifist. It's especially galling as Gibson does tease two key moments that informed the adult Doss, an incident where he almost accidentally killed his brother with a brick to the head, and another where his father's abuse towards his mother became so fierce that Desmond pulled a gun on him. Baffling that such a carrot be so tantalisingly dangled, and then sharply withdrawn in favour of Because I loves me the baby Jesus! There are certain egregious individual moments that threaten to derail Hacksaw's credibility, most of them involving Vince Vaughn, who clearly watched R. Lee Army in Full Metal Jacket and thought, what that performance needed was more of Vince Vaughn. One moment in particular where he is dragged wounded by DOS, grease gun blazing as Japanese soldiers demonstrate an apparent inability to hit a barn door, is woefully misjudged and almost laugh out loud funny. And, whether or not it has ever happened outside of a Call of Duty escort mission, it ought never to have been included. Still, Hacksaw Ridge just about hangs together as a piece of entertainment, provided you're happy to imbibe the Hallmark Channel meets Hamburger Hill aesthetic. It's certainly not sophisticated, but what Gibson lacks in nuance he almost makes up by sheer force of will, and maybe that's appropriate given the parallel with our hero. For the most part, the cast are fine, with Garfield in particular exuding an undeniably endearing naivety that works well in the context of the role, though Hugo Weaving does often come across as though he's dropped in from the community theatre, and Vince Vaughn is... yeah... Whatever you've imagined Hacksaw Ridge to be, you're probably correct. So if that's your bag, it's absolutely fine. Thanks for that, Craig. Only one opinion on the Twitters about Hacksaw Ridge there. From, again, Blake Wrights, at Blake Wrights on Twitter, from the I'm the Host podcast. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge, more like Hacksaw Bilge. Ah, uh, uh, not so, Scott. We have two. Oh, yes, sorry. This is one hot off the presses just then. That's at Scott's actor, Steve Nelson. Hello. Hacksaw is the only one I've seen yet and thought it was outstanding, if a little bit too Jesus Christy. But that's just Mel. Yes. Um, that's very Mel. Yes. The religious overtones, I mean, I don't actually mind them so much in this because it is less about religion so much as it is about conviction, which I suppose you could argue is the case with the other uh, films in. Mel Gibson's little uh, trilogy of you know, like Braveheart and Passion of the Christ. Religion's mentioned in them, but funnily enough, even in Passion of the Christ, it's probably more conviction of that religion rather than religion itself that has been examined. And uh, that's mm-hmm. certainly the case here. I, I don't have the benefit of knowing exactly what Craig said about this at this point, but I will say that it um, has some fairly spectacular war scenes, the likes of which we've not seen in some time. Of It's certainly been a good long time since I've seen this many intestines in film outside <laughs> of a zombie film. Uh, quite brutal, and it makes uh, no bones about showing you the bones of war and conflict. It certainly manages a minor miracle in being a film with Sam Worthington in it, where I actually cared somewhat about Sam Worthington's character. Wow. That's never happened before. <laughs> so, that's, 
<laughs> Remarkable. Garfield's accent is, uh, I suppose it's fine, but anytime British people try and pull out a, you know, Southern American accent, or not Southern American, but a, a, a Southern USA accent, it does almost sound like it's parody rather than homage or, or you know, a reflection of reality. That aside, I think Garfield does pretty well. Certainly is a, a compelling and uh, unusual main character and watching how he's tested over the course of the piece and stays true to what he believes is uh, quite impressive and of course his accomplishments on that field up in that ridge is uh, certainly undeniably brave or suicidally brave almost and um, overall yes I guess I enjoyed it well enough I can certainly see why it's a powerful um, you know impactful movie at the end of the day as I can treat it more as a kind of biopic it is interesting and I'm glad I watched it but I don't think it's really teaching us an awful lot about anything other than shining a light on this guy's story which is certainly worth hearing about and I don't think I'd heard about it before, so it was certainly news to me, and it tells that tale pretty well. As a return to form for Mel Gibson, I suppose it is. Now we get into that unfortunate discussion about uh, separating the art from the artist, mm-hmm. uh, which we've had with numerous people over the years, and Mel Gibson's another one, maybe not the worst, but um, not far off it. Mel Gibson's not, well, it's not, not really Polanski. the best human being. Yeah, exactly. He's not Roman Polanski. Um, he's not as weird as Woody Allen, uh, but... Um, I don't know, to be honest, I think I'm just going to body swear of that conversation entirely. I'm actually pretty good at being able to separate the art from the artist in general, and uh, certainly the film was compelling enough for me to be able to watch it without really thinking about that too much, and I suppose that's all we can really ask for. It's only if a film happens to be bad that I will also remember it's a bad film done by a bad person and create it a bit more accordingly. Yes, I would recommend it, I think. Not the most enjoyable film on this list by a long chalk. That's probably more a testament to the quality of most of the rest of the films that we'll be talking about rather than anything inherently wrong about Hacksaw Ridge itself. Yeah, powerful film and probably worth watching. I would give it a go. Which I will. You better. Okay, so that will take us on to Moonlight. Drew, it's over to you. In its most reduced state, Moonlight is simply a love story. A tale of how circumstance and events stop someone from being with the person that they love. Timeless. It's what this film shares with Brokeback Mountain, and such comparisons are not always flippant. And I mention that because there has been a lot of backlash against people referring to this as Brokeback Mountain with black people, that sort of mm. thing. But there, there's something there in that, that there's such a comparison. At heart, they're love stories, and the fact that both people share the same chromosomal makeup is irrelevant, or should be. The idea that a man loving a man is somehow any different from a man loving a woman or a woman loving a man is intellectually untenable. But in our still painfully primitive society, it's not that simple. And while Brokeback Mountain had restrictive dressing, Moonlight's romance has chains and weights. Split into three parts, the film begins with a young boy called Chiron, only child of a single mother in a poor, mostly black neighbourhood of Miami, being chased by bullies. Hiding in a derelict apartment, The shy and uncommunicative boy is found by drug dealer Blue, Maharshala Ali, who shows him some attention and warmth. Two things sorely lacking from his life, and certainly not things much provided by his crack addict mother, played by Naomi Harris. Blue's girlfriend Teresa, Janelle Monet, also becomes something of a surrogate mother to him, and she in particular shows him the understanding that he needs as he begins to realise that he is in some way different to his peers. In the second part, an adolescent Chiron, now played by Ashton Sanders, is aware of his sexuality but tries to suppress it and, frankly, to suppress anything that would make him seem different, to make him stand out, to be a target. But it is not enough and he is still bullied. But in this world of near adults, where difference and especially vulnerability are not survival traits, the consequences are much more severe. After his first sexual encounter, Chiron suffers a betrayal and more torment, the result of which is a violent outburst that will bring this period of his life to an end, but define much of the rest of it. The third and final section sees the now adult Chiron, played in this portion by Trevant Rhodes, pretending to be happy as a drug dealer, putting on a hard, violent persona demanded of him by his surroundings and to obscure the person he has inside. Alex Hibbert, as Chiron's youngest incarnation, is deeply sympathetic and the performance is remarkably assured and naturalistic for one so young. His section is also the one I would have liked to have seen explored some more, particularly when the bullied youngster begins to ask questions about his awakening sexual preferences. 
and what it says about us as a society that thinks it can both evaluate that from something like a person's walk and judge and punish a child. Mahershala Ali gives good support as Blue, at least he does after the first 10 minutes where pretty much all of his dialogue is a mumble. He's a drug dealer with a tender side and while it skates pretty close to being the crack dealer version of the stereotypical hooker with a heart of gold, it's a much more rounded character than normally accompanies such a job. Naomi Harris's character does though come across as a cliché, though I must add the caveat that she herself thought that it was a cliché and was reluctant to take the part, but was persuaded by the director as the character was largely based on the facts of the director and writer's own experiences. And she performs her role fiercely. Even with all of those praiseworthy attributes though, I found that Moonlight didn't do much for me. Or at least nothing like as much as I hoped or before expected. Now, you may say that perhaps, because I am neither black nor gay, that it may just be that Moonlight lacks relevance for me. But that is, of course, arrant nonsense, because I am a human being with empathy and understanding, and moreover, successful storytelling transcends deficiency in experience. The fact is that Moonlight simply didn't win me over in anything like the same way it seems to have done most critics. I find then that I'm somewhat torn by this film. It has a promising beginning, and Chiron's journey certainly engenders sympathy, but I just don't find it all that special. Part of me wonders if I'm missing something, a thought given fuel by so much positive reception elsewhere, but part of me wonders if I am not so blown away by Moonlight because it's like preaching to the choir. I already know there is um, nothing abnormal about homosexuality and I believe that if you think it is something to be scared of or punished or suppressed then you're a bad person and should probably come to harm. But what a chance that people who feel that way would ever even watch a film like Moonlight. But mostly I wonder how much of the response of others is simply an availability heuristic. There are very few films as it is about young male homosexuality and high profile films about young male homosexuality in poor, black, hyper-masculine societies are rarer than hen's teeth, and for that alone Moonlight should be lauded. Moonlight is, sadly, relevant and necessary. That it is a well-produced, well-acted and engaging drama on a topic is icing on the cake, and I certainly recommend watching it. Just take the hype with a pinch of salt. Right, I watched Moonlight yesterday, and my initial thoughts after watching it is, boy, that's a lot to digest, and <laughs> I've still not really quite digested all of it. I would say I liked it. I think there are still, no matter what you say about you know transcending all these second things, there are real barriers to understanding it, what's going on here, particularly for us who are as white as white can be. And there's a number, you know, there are at least half a dozen very obvious social uh, constructs that this touches on that I have I can have empathy for, certainly, but I'm never really going to be able to understand it. You know, look, film's a great tool for helping us, you know, have empathy for these kind of things, but you're never going to understand someone's lived experiences through a film. Uh, it's just it's just not that powerful. Sorry. I know directors would like us to think it is, but it is, it's not really. So there's a whole lot of things going on here with um, the other... Been, you know, African-American society and how that's structured and how that's been marginalised and how their lack of opportunities has led to certain traits and things and how crack dealing and all that kind of stuff starts and how people get addicted. And then you've got the whole axis of how African-Americans treat masculinity and how that ties in with the concept of, you know, someone being gay and all that stuff. You know, that's mm-hmm. an incredible amount to unpack in this film. There's a lot going on in this film. There's so many things you could prod and peel away at this film, and I think that's probably why it's been uh, received so well. It's a kind of film you could talk about for days and not exhaust uh, all of the sociological aspects of it. As a film itself, I enjoyed it well enough, and I have great respect for all the actors involved, uh, the various incarnations of the main character are all pretty well, um, no complaints with any of that. I would not really have guessed that Naomi Harris had this in her. I like her well enough, but I wouldn't have thought she'd be able to pull this role out, and uh, fair play to her for doing it. Very impressive performance, and same with uh, Janelle Monet's character, that's two good performances, She's a, she's turning out to be another one of these annoying polymaths who can do everything pretty well. So, yes, I, I can understand why it's uh, getting so much plot and as I say I've got a lot of empathy for the characters it didn't connect in the same way that I can imagine it connecting for a lot of people who are in this kind of situation or who have more experience with it or who you know, even are just American would probably help I lean towards your way and kind of not being as blown away by it as the hype would suggest that's more of a deficiency in you know my experience I think than it is anything to do with the film I think it's very well produced and I think that it is certainly worth recommending to absolutely anyone who's got any kind of appreciation of film and yeah 
it should definitely be seen. It's it's not an enjoyable film. Um, it's, it's one of those, I think in a, a great many respects, it's one of those take your medicine films, but it is so astonishingly well handled that I think it's well worth doing so. Yes, really, I, I think it, it needs to be seen. It's important. I mean, even just, except for the film itself, just in the abstract, that, that people need to see this so more films like this get made. Yeah, It doesn't yeah. in terms of a number of, of people paying attention to it, but because this is... Really, how many times have you seen a film with, or even heard about a film where it's about a young black gay man? They're so, so uncommon. Yeah. So it's why it needs to be more, because when people start seeing themselves be represented like that on screen, it helps them. When other people who start seeing or see that as somehow abnormal, when they start seeing that represented more in media and in entertainment, then it becomes less different, more normal to those people. Yeah. It helps everybody in the end. So socially, as well as artistically, you should watch this film. Yes. I just wish it had been more of an effect on me. I wanted it to. But um, most between us discuss reasons potentially why that would be so. Yes. I think it's one of these films that would be interesting to revisit six months, a year down the road, and see how it feels once that's kind of percolated a little bit. And how that's once we're away from the hype storm and all the awards talks died down, we can maybe take another look at it and see what we think about it at that point. That's maybe a, another one to stick on our little list of uh, revisiting films down the line. Yeah, and certainly because this is largely a it's the time of year, the type of films we're talking about, largely an awards-themed podcast. Well, with a nod towards them anyway, that of the films we've talked about so far, well, train spotting aside, mm. it's not going to be talked up for that because it's only just been released, but yeah. it's the one most deserving of awards i would say yeah i I would of the things that i've seen yes i would agree with that yeah certainly when you think about this in terms of the way it's talking about um actually not even directly talking about but just showing you the society at the time this has far more of a bite to it than hidden figures does Mm -hmm. and i think it's a a more interesting and more relevant film in that regard yeah and then i mean i know the genres are so different so it's kind of maybe wrong to compare them but when you see a film like this being talked about as a best film best picture and then something like la la land uh, like yeah what were you smoking yeah <laughs> really there's clearly merit in one of those films for it to be considered on that sort of a level and it's not la la land yeah i mean i think if la la land wins you know bigly in the uh, the oscars coming up then it's going to be a more of a wish fulfillment escapism than and return to simpler times than it is anything that's going to reflect anything that's going on just now and if you're going to talk about film as a reflection of society if you are going to think that it it can shine a light on these kind of situations then moonlight deserves the awards and the recognition much more than something like la la land does i think i mean really scott um i don't say this cynically i think i'm probably just more accurate like if la la land wins bigly as you say then it's (laughs) going to be because it's hollywood um celebrating hollywood Um, yes there's nothing hollywood likes more than films about well alien and general but particularly hollywood or films about making films and it's a cross-section of a film based in hollywood and about making films so yes. it's probably going to win thanks hollywood but well let's not prejudge it maybe they'll surprise us we'll, we'll find out in due course okay so that brings us on to this podcast's undoubted wooden spoon split <laughs> um uh, i think by this point i would like to think that most people have come to the same conclusion as me regarding the output of m night Shyamalan. Uh, excuse me i believe you find it's pronounced Shyamalan ding dong <laughs> m night Shyamalan, as i have uh, which is to say leave them well alone um <laughs> The Sixth Sense may have its fans, I'm not actually amongst them, and Unbreakable is an adequate film, but the downslide going from Signs to The Village to The Lady in the Water to the actually unintentionally hilarious but dreadful The Happening is really quite to the cliff edge to plummet over. Have you seen The Happening? Uh... Is that the one with Marky Mark Wahlberg in it? Yeah, yeah, where yes, the wind tries to attack them, yeah. And it's got that hilarious scene where this is the, the, the footage of a mobile phone of some poor zookeeper being getting his arms ripped off by, by a lion, one of the most <laughs> terrible, terrible best filmmaking I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it, actually, I do recommend it happening. It's hilariously <laughs> dreadful. Go and watch that film. <laughs> yes. Yet, still, unbelievably, he's still making films, although the flop of After Earth has seen him retreat into smaller budget or quick and dirty affairs, such as 2015's found footage horror The Visit, which I have understandably avoided for all the obvious reasons. Yet, enough people had been saying that Split was a return to form that it suckered me into ponying up for a ticket, and to be fair, there's some truth to that, but allow me to be quite clear from the outset that this is best viewed as a comedy rather than the psychological horror that it's billed as. (laughs) 
because it's really, really stupid. Kevin Wendell Crumb, played by James McAvoy, is a complicated man and no one understands him but his woman, or at least his therapist, Dr. Karen Fletcher, played by Betty Buckley. It turns out that Kev has dissociative identity disorder, or multiple personality disorder as it's probably more commonly known, with the region of 20-odd personalities, most of which we're thankfully spared from, being contained in Kevin's noggin. The stable dominant one seems to be Barry, who's managing to hold a relatively normal life together by suppressing some of the more unsavoury characters that are in there with him. Of course, that's hardly going to hold for a film of this nature. So soon, Dennis is given sway, who likes watching young girls dance naked, which bodes poorly for the three teenagers he's just kidnapped. Claire, Ailey Lou Richardson, Marcia, played by Jessica Sula, and the black sheep of the group, and our main focus in the film, Casey. Anya Taylor-Joy. There's two essential threads running through this film, as Barry tries to flag to Dr. Fletcher that something's going on, while Dennis tries to bluff his way past her concerns while pretending to be Barry, and Casey tries to get some of Kevin's other personalities to release her, or at least get some useful information on escaping from them. Personalities such as Hedwig, supposedly a nine-year-old boy, or Patricia, who's making ominous predictions about the coming of the Beast, and So it goes with talk of this beast, apparently an as-yet-uncovered superhuman personality, leading us to believe that some patented Shyamalan twist will be coming to write us out of this narrative hole before, and I suppose I should sound the spoiler warning klaxon before this. (laughs) It turns out that the twist was that this is played entirely straight. Presumably, no dumber idea was achievable. (laughs) And before long, McAvoy's bouncing around at ludicrous speed and ripping the hearts from her corralled teens with Casey making a break for it and being hunted through the facility that they are held in. Now, I hope most of you are thinking that this sounds dreadful because that is very much what I'm trying to convey here. (laughs) (laughs) It's not completely unenjoyable, but more in a happening sense than the sixth sense. Um, McAvoy chews the scenery with a commendably unhinged abandon, which makes much of this an amusingly hamtacular performance if you're in the mood to ironically hate watch something. But please don't make the mistake of taking any part of this remotely seriously or you're in for a trip to Disappointment City. Actually, I take that back. Hate Watch is a trifle strong for this. Let's be fair, despite the idiocy of the central premise, it's well-paced, and given the mess films of this ilk can get into, it's got a relatively straightforward narrative. Compare and contrast, if you will, with the garbage fire of 2003's Identity, if you want a real exemplar of excrement. Nobody thanks you for mentioning that film's existence, Scott. (laughs) Nobody... No one wants that. Comparison Split is just far too goofy to hate, but nowhere near goofy enough for me to recommend this to anyone except perhaps the most morbidly curious. Chillingly, it also points to the possibility of an M. Night Shyamalan cinematic universe, which is probably about what the world deserves at the minute. (laughs) (laughs) You have no chance to survive. Make your time. In this company... Split is an embarrassment to even to mention, and uh, I, I heartily recommend everyone body swerve it, and if you are one of the few people giving it a positive review, what are you thinking, boy? People have given it positive reviews, have they? <laughs> apparently, apparently. I do not understand why, but uh, there are many things in this world I will never truly really understand, and this is one of them. A final point from at Blake Wrights on the Twitters. Split harnesses the most overused mental illness cliche in fiction, given the rarity of it. In Resurgent with FX Legion, which I believe is, is that the next Men series? I can't. Anyway, I can tell you, it, I didn't recognise that name when I saw that tweet. Anyway, what is it about it that compels us? Well, I suppose it's because it's an interesting trick. It's the kind of thing that would really suck our actors into playing these kind of roles, I suppose. Because there's nothing actors like more than showing off their their broad range by playing a a number of characters in one film, but... um, It's just convenient they can fit them all into one package. Yeah, it's a a good way to explore that, but I I don't know, I guess it's one of the more interesting concepts of of psychology that you could translate into schlock horror, I suppose. But yeah, as you say, it's it's a very rare and highly unusual condition, and one that pops up with frightening regularity in the horror genre, but that's probably more of failings of horror writing than it is to do with anything else, I would say. Now, I I assume, Drew, you've been sensible and not watched Split, so that means that you get to talk about Fences. Go ahead, why don't you do that, boy? Yes, I think I'll have found this more rewarding than you found Split, Scott. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee that, almost (laughs) certainly. 1950s Pittsburgh. Ben Mann, Troy Max, Denzel Washington. Finishes work on Friday afternoon, collects his pay, and then holds court in his back garden with a pint of gin, regaling his friend Bono, Stephen Henderson, and his wife Rose, Viola Davis, 
with a mixture of true, augmented and outright tall tales and some homespun philosophy. Washington pounds away, staggering amounts of dialogue flowing from his mouth like music. Troy is a man of contradictions, disappointments, hardships, resentment and unfulfilled desires. Subjected to physical and emotional abuse in childhood and racism throughout his life, his great dream to become a professional baseball player never came to fruition. While he has suffered many things, as well as inflicting some hurt and has been to prison, it is this one thing, this unfulfilled potential that seems to colour so much of his personality and interaction, and why he seems to resent the potential success of his youngest son Corey, Giovanna Depo, who has aroused the interest of recruiters for his talents in American football. It is also at least partially the reason for his infidelity to his wife, but Troy is so much more than that, and in less adept hands, and with worse writing, Troy would be a much lesser character. There is so much nuance in him, and Washington brings it all to the screen. The pain, the weight of responsibility, the feeling of injustice, the ego, the trauma, the competing desires. Now, for Caronis, I'm sensible of the fact that I haven't mentioned much about the plot, and it's because there's not really a plot to speak of. This is very much a character piece about a man's relationship with his wife and his children. And from that point of view, not an awful lot happens. But that doesn't really matter because it's deeply, deeply compelling from the point of view of the character interactions and the dialogue. Denzel Washington is possibly my favourite currently working actor. Hmm. While I've seen him in bad films, I don't think I can recall ever seeing him give a bad performance. Yeah. And he is one of those rare talents capable of lifting the quality of the work he is in, however unlikely that may seem, simply by his sheer presence. And when he is given good quality material, as here, he is untouchable. Troy Maxson isn't a particularly good or likeable man, but thanks to a combination of excellent writing and superb acting, he is a fascinating, complex, contradictory, interesting and especially believable man. He feels like a person and not just a character. Now that's just as well as Troy is given the lion's share and most of the other animals share too of screen time and dialogue. When others do get a look in though, they all bring a very high standard of work with Viola Davis, Stephen Henderson, Jovan Adepo and Mikkel T. Williamson performing extremely well. The direction lets things down a little though and on occasion seems kind of amateur, particularly some very awkward shots of chairs and a fallen flower. Having somehow paid no attention to the opening credits and avoided the information on all other channels, I awaited the end credits to see if this had been the work of a debutante director. Greatly surprised was I then to see Denzel Washington's name appear, and while he's not hugely experienced at the helm, this ain't his first rodeo. But then another piece of information floated in, and much of the film made sense. Something had been bothering me about the style of the rest of the film, but so captivated was I by old Denzel that I wasn't concentrating on it. But when I realised that the film was based on a play, a play in which, in its recent Broadway revival, much of the cast also starred, then it all clicked, because the film feels really stagey. And I think that most of my directorial quibbles probably stem from the difficulty of translating this from stage to screen. Fortunately, that's really more of an aside, and nearly inconsequential to the enjoyment of the film. While I'd like to have seen more of Troy's son Corey, the trailer would lead you to believe that the father and son relationship is a much more substantial part of the film than it is, and I rather wish it was, and it really could do with a good 75% fewer baseball metaphors. (laughs) Sadly, that's really not hyperbole. Minor, minor things. If there is one fault I could pick with this, it is that after a scene in which Troy reveals her truth to Rose, and Viola Davis delivers an astonishing, heartbreaking monologue, the film begins to lose power and diminishes afterwards. But Fences is fantastic, and Washington's towering performance is reason enough to see it, let alone the nuanced, sympathetic and passionate portrayal of Rose by Viola Davis. Yes, it may be the Denzel Washington show, but I can't see how that's ever not a good thing. And everything else... Spectacular bonus. 
Yeah, good stuff. I heartily look forward to catching up with this one. I've been trying to think, actually, speaking about is there an actor I prefer currently working in Denzel Washington? I can't immediately think of any. I had the thought a while ago, it's like, who's my favourite actor? And, and I thought, I'm not sure I could pick one. And then after having seen this in the cinema yesterday, I started thinking about it again. No, it's, it's Denzel Washington. I cannot think of somebody better. No, I, I probably can't either. I certainly no one that's still appearing in, you know, lead roles. The only other people that I could maybe put up there is, of late, puzzlingly enough, Josh Rowland, who's done a, had a good run of stuff recently. And I don't know. Maybe something like Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> he comes along yeah, well, that's, so that, seldom that I just yeah, encounter him. Yeah, maybe Jeff Bridges. I don't know, but again, he's, he's, he's not often the, the focus on it. Yeah, you're probably right. It might actually be Denzel in terms of guys who are getting the lead roles continuously. Yeah, good call. A good call, yeah, sir. Um, if there was nothing else in this film but Denzel Washington monologuing, this mm. would be one of the best films I've seen in ages just for the yeah. acting alone. That's why I look forward to watching this film because I can, you can always guarantee you'll find something enjoyed. I mean, yeah. even when he is in you know, dreadful, dreadful films like The Book of Eli, you know, he's still <laughs> yes. really good. The film around him was an absolute disaster, but he was really good. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot to unpack in fences that I'll quite enjoy looking through as well. Honestly, you cannot take your eyes off of him when he's speaking. Mm. There's just so much power in that performance. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. Yeah, watch it, for it is awfully good. Good, good. So it leaves us hurtling towards the end of this podcast. I will just mention some other feedback on the Twitters. JTG, that's at NinjaPotato10 on Twitter, who gives us the following takes on all of the films we've spoken about, pretty much. Uh, La La Land, Overhyped Fish, Moonlight, Solid Drama, Hidden Figures, An Enlightening and Fascinating Story, Hacksaw Ridge, Visually Spectacular, Trainspotting 2, a stellar sequel, Fences, a heavy drama, and Split. <laughs> up, which uh, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. So you, <laughs> what, what he's really done there is compress this entire hour and a 20 minute long podcast into, into 140 <laughs> characters. So yeah, he's the most efficient compression algorithm known to man. JTG, who I believe does some roundups of board games for that's not current.com, which is worth a look if you're into that kind of thing, amongst other things on that site. So that will take us to the end. If you've got any feedback you'd like to give us on this or anything else we've been doing lately, please give us a shout. You can find us on Twitter, that's at FUDSONFILM. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash FUDSONFILM, or you can email us at podcast at FUDSONFILM.com. If anyone has started listening to this after the recent bizarre uptick in interest in our French New Wave episodes and our commentary on Shoot the Piano Player, welcome. Uh, This is perhaps more like what we're into, but if you want something a bit more themed, then we will be back with you on the first with a look at the films of Studio Ghibli and in particular Heizo Miyazaki. So we'll do a two-part episode on that as we cover the man's entire career, which I think we're all very keen to look forward to, although it will basically be us gushing for about two hours. So (laughs) maybe not the most varied of podcasts, but we'll be back with that in due course. But until then, I've been Scott Morris and Drew Tavendale has been Drew Tavendale. Bye-bye. We miss you, Virtual Craig. Yes, Virtual Craig has been Virtual Craig. (laughs) Catch you all on the flip side.